welcome to Martyr She Wrote. I'm Anna Clark Miller, and this is a podcast on religious trauma, so consider this your trigger warning. Let's dive into a topic that's serious as hell. Welcome, Martyrs. Today is an extra special episode because my extra special significant other is the person that I am interviewing. Marcus Miller is here with me today, and he is my husband of 16 years. That's right, 16. Awesome. Marcus, welcome. Well, hello, fellow Martyrs. My name is Marcus Miller. I am Anna's spouse. And this is officially my favorite podcast. (laughs) Oh, you don't have to say that. (laughs) (laughs) It's definitely in the top five for sure. (laughs) So Marcus, tell listeners just a little bit about who you are and what you do for a living. Who am I? That's a deep question. Uh, I'm a philosophy major, so you can't ask someone uh, who majored in philosophy a deep question like, who are you? Uh, Unless you have a lot of time on your hands. Um, Oh, I do. (laughs) I'm about to turn 40 years old. I am currently working in education. I've spent the last uh, 15 years working in public education. I was a social studies teacher, a technology teacher, and then I moved up into campus and district administration in a few uh, various roles. I have a master's degree in education administration, and that's kind of where I am now. Cool. Uh, What else do people need to know about my biography? Favorite color? Favorite color is blue. Ugh, typical. I know, right? (laughs) Okay. So today we thought that we would talk about deconstruction because that's something that you and I have both gone through. Mm -hmm. And for those of you out there who may not be familiar with the term necessarily, religious deconstruction is a term for basically the process of deliberately analyzing the assumptions and components of a belief system. But the intention there is not necessarily to discard those beliefs, but just to examine them and to see if they match up with your core values. And this is a conversation that I wanted to have with Marcus in particular, because We have both deconstructed, but not necessarily in all of the same ways or at the exact same time, right? Yeah. So I, like I said, I majored in philosophy at a, uh, and we went to a very conservative Baptist university and uh, my intention, and it was a, a philosophy major with a theology minor, And I fully intended to go straight into seminary and go into church ministry and be a pastor. I'm glad that that's not how things turned out in reality, but I I was all in on the whole evangelical thing. Uh, I grew up in conservative, non-denominational churches my whole life. Um, I was extremely active in the youth groups and serving in those uh, youth groups and volunteered at a variety of churches throughout college. Mm -hmm. So when we left Washita, we got married in 2006. And at that point, you were pretty sure that you wanted to be a youth minister, right? Yeah. So I I will forever be grateful to my uh, 
childhood pastor growing up because he was like, uh, before you spend like $60,000 going to seminary, you should maybe go and like just do youth group for a year or two, um, kind of as a part-time or volunteer and just make sure you like it before you decide that's your whole life. And boy, am I glad about that because I uh, he hooked me up with a little church in Frisco. He was like, hey, I know this little church. It's really small, but trying to grow and they need someone to serve in the youth department over there. So I got in and there were probably like seven to maybe (laughs) 10 little teenagers in there. Yeah. And I started working on a youth group and Sunday school. And, and I absolutely loved coming up with Sunday school lessons. And I was like, yeah, we're going to study this book and we're going to talk about what it means. And we'll talk about these application questions. We'll do this discussion. I was just so excited about lesson lesson planning planning. (laughs) for this group. And I really loved these kids. These kids were kind and they were just trying their best to be human. And I just really did love them. But all of the sort of silly stuff that comes along with church, um, the how many marshmallows can you stuff in your mouth and let's go play paintball. And <laughs> I don't think that's church. The- that's just youth groups. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All of that stuff. I was like, oh, really bored by and not interested in. And so it was sort of like a light bulb went off in my head and it was like, you know, maybe if you love kids and you love planning lessons, maybe you're supposed to be a teacher. And so I went and I got my alternative certification and got into teaching and never looked back. That was absolutely where I was supposed to be. So to me, I feel like I dodged a bullet um, because I have a lot of friends who got into full-time ministry and then deconstructed in one way or another. And now they have to really go completely for a second career. And that's really hard to do out of ministry. I agree. I feel like our lives would have gone a really different direction if you hadn't had that sort of like insight about education. Yeah. Yeah. I'm extremely grateful for that uh, realization. And uh, obviously you and I talked about it a lot as we were kind of figuring that out. Yeah. So even before deciding not to do vocational ministry, you and I had kind of started uh, doing the early stages of deconstruction, although of course we didn't have that language necessarily back then. But I wanted to talk about an interesting thing that happened when we were actually doing our premarital counseling. Do you remember that little project that the counselor <laughs> gave us? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, funny coincidence that counselor happened to also be the same pastor that I grew up with that mm-hmm. uh, gave me that advice about youth ministry. But so he was doing our premarital counseling, and uh, he did this very interesting thing where he sent us into two different rooms and gave us like an hour and said, "Here's a couple of sheets of paper, and I want you both to write your philosophy of life." Mm-hmm. And he wouldn't give us any more instructions. It wasn't like there was no like explanation about like how to write a philosophy of life. It was just, you write your philosophy of life and right. uh, we're going to come back and we're going to talk about it. And the rule follower in me, of course, was like super panicked. Like I need more guidelines. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. What's the word count that it has to be? I need to make an A. Uh-huh. So we did that. We went to two different rooms and we both wrote our philosophy of life And handed them in to uh, my pastor and he came back and gave us like a stern look and was like, did y'all talk about this in advance? And we were like, no. 
And he was like, did your sister, cause my sister had gone, her premarital counseling was with the same guy. And uh, he was like, did, did Megan tell you what this was going to be like? And we were like, no, she hasn't talked. We haven't talked about this with her at all. He was <laughs> like, okay, well um, I've got good news. I have never in my entire life seen two people write so similar of a philosophy of life. <laughs> and he said, this is the deal breaker for most. He he tells us, and he brags almost a little bit about this. He's like, I advise more than half of my premarital counseling clients not to get married. And this is the project in which I give them that advice. Because when I get two people who have two like completely opposite philosophy of lives, that's an almost guarantee that they're going to get into marriage and they're going to have a really hard time because they're just, they're pulling in different directions. And when two people are pulling in different directions for the entirety of the marriage, that's going to be really yoked. hard. Yeah. Unequally yeah. yoked. That's what we call it. Okay. That so That is what we call it. So we were like really, really, really aligned was kind of the point of that story, but what would you say that alignment was exactly? So we both wrote about every single thing in your life is about God. <laughs> and everything that you do has to be glorifying to him, because that's the only thing that matters in life is that you live your entire life in pursuit of glorifying God. Mm -hmm. Every breath that isn't somehow worshipful is a wasted breath. Everything you do in your career, every friendship, every relationship, if you're not worshiping him and spreading the gospel and serving him and glorifying him, then you are failing as a child of God. I feel like there was some stuff in there about like being happy and, you know, having a family, but all of it did come back to our goal is to glorify God and worship God with our lives, period. <laughs> yeah. It's funny because that's not, I'm surprised that he has so many people who don't write that essay because that's what we were raised to believe. Like right. in youth group every Sunday, that's what you talk about. You buy t-shirts at the Christian bookstore that essentially say like branding you, like everything I do is about Jesus. We sing songs like every breath I take, every step I take is all about you, Jesus. Remember that tattoo that you got? <laughs> I do. I have a tattoo on my wrist. It's John 3.30 in the original Greek, because I was a Bible college nerd. And uh, John 3.30 says, I must decrease, he must increase. And I tattooed it on my wrist like a really hipster WWJD bracelet. And mm -hmm. I still have it. I actually asked my tattoo artist the other day about what are my options for cover-ups? And he was basically like, eh, you're probably just going to have to laser it off. Yeah. But yeah, it's a reminder. Uh, and that's not on my only tattoo that said that I also got mm -hmm. a seal on my forearm that's sort of like a flame symbol. And I wanted it to symbolize uh, that I was sealed by the Holy Spirit. Um, and like a brand, right? Like a brand, like I was a <laughs> cattle and that my owner was God. You were a cattle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah. So we were like a hundred percent in and, you know, had the blessing of our pastor and, you know, that was what our lives were going to be. So mm -hmm. it was definitely pretty disorienting when pretty soon after all of that, we both started really confronting some doubts. Wh yeah. What do you think the early sort of 
signs of deconstruction were from your perspective? For me, the very first thing that I deconstructed, and I started deconstructing this like in high school and college, and you and I talked about this even while we were dating, was um, hell. Mm-hmm. I could not wrap my mind around the idea that this loving God who, you know, Jesus is the perfect picture of his personality and he sends billions of people to hell and they burn and suffer forever. And that's what, that's what he designed. He did it on purpose. It was just too horrific for me to understand. I couldn't accept it. And so I did a lot of work trying to figure out how I could still be a Christian and not believe in hell, or at least not believe in that version of hell. Mm -hmm. And I went through some iterations. So the first thing I did was I found that there is this sort of alternative view of hell, which really you could make a pretty solid argument for based on scripture called Mm -hmm. annihilationism, where you don't suffer forever. Maybe you suffer for a little bit in proportion to the sins that you have committed in your sinful life. And then you just, your soul kind of is gone. And you are no longer a thing. You're no longer conscious. You're no longer suffering. And I was like, okay, that still sucks. Like that's horrible. It's a death sentence, but death sentence is better than permanent eternal torture. And so I was like that I can go. And I had verses memorized that would like support my worldview that God's not punishing anyone forever. It's just not okay. I I remember when you were talking about that belief and I was like pretty concerned. I was like, you know, does that really, is that, does that count? And I'm pretty sure my, <laughs> my parents were a little bit concerned about it too. They were just like, oh, Anna's free thinking husband. <laughs> <laughs> with his weird ideas about hell. I don't know why he won't just get on board with uh, permanent torture for everyone. Uh, yeah. Well, and. And I, I feel like that was a time of life when we had some people close to us who came out, if you will, as not Christian. And that was really the catalyst for needing to sort of figure out what it was that we even believed about what happens to non-believers when they die. Yeah. So when you grow up in the church, those are the only people you hang out with. Those are your friendships. Your friendships are your youth group friends. And I went to public school, but it was still like in the Bible belt and everyone was, you know, some variation of Christian for the most part. And so I didn't really have to wonder about like these people who I knew and loved going to hell. Mm -hmm. And then my little brother, Austin, told us that he was not a Christian and he wasn't sure if he ever really was. And he was, uh, it was like just out of college when he kind of like admitted this to the family. And I was, I was wrecked. I couldn't, I was like, no, my, my brother, I love my little brother in a way that is like, it hurts me to think about how much I love him. And it's the same way you love your little sister. Right. And so, and then I was faced with this like conflict of, so you're telling me that God is so mad at Austin for not believing that he's gonna end his soul either send him to hell and torture him, which I didn't believe anymore, or even still like give him a capital punishment, give his soul a capital punishment because he didn't believe hard enough. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was like, no, it just can't be. There's not a way, there's not a universe in which the eternal loving God loves my little brother less than I do. Yeah. 
I definitely remember that being a big struggle for both of us of just talking about Austin and talking about the implications of what what all of that meant. And I definitely think that was kind of the way that we talk about it sometimes is like, if your faith is a Jenga tower, there's there's always a first Jenga block that you pull out. And for you, Marcus, that was it. It was hell. That was the first big Jenga block. And without that block, my faith probably could have still stood like a Jenga tower. The first block doesn't take down the Jenga tower. Mm -hmm. I think one of the next things that we wrestled with was, weirdly enough, having kids. So Mm -hmm. we had been married for a couple of years and it had always been our plan to like, let's, we'll be married for five years and then we'll have two kids and then that'll be it. And that was the plan. But Mm -hmm. A couple years in a marriage, we were like, wait a minute, do we actually, do we actually need to have kids? Like, why, why are we assuming that that's just sort of like the expectation? And for me, especially, I definitely did not want to be a mom and you already had a daughter. And so we were like, wait, maybe we don't have to do this thing. That's sort of like the Christian template for a family. Yeah. That's funny that you described that as a Jenga block. I remember that conversation and we talked a lot about it, Uh but that never challenged my faith. (laughs) I think that was such a cultural thing. And I think there's so much wrapped up in just sort of the, you know, the sexist expectations for you as a woman that I wasn't particularly challenged by the idea of not having kids. I remember you looking at me, I think with trepidation in your face, like, Mm -hmm. so do you need to have more kids? And I thought about it and I was like, not particularly. Yeah. I feel like there's something about being a woman in the church where it's like having kids is not just a cultural expectation. It's your wifely duty to provide heirs for (laughs) the head of the (laughs) house. And then, you know, if you're a really good Christian woman, then you homeschool them and you don't work outside of the home and all those kind of things. So, yeah, I think. That was more of a jingle block for me, maybe than for you, but that was definitely another big step of us sort of like not conforming to what literally all of our other friends at church were doing. Like we were the only child-free people that we knew. It's true. Yeah. I think that's sort of what drew us together in college was the fact that we were not particularly conformist. Yeah. So many late night conversations. Um, so what do you, what else do you feel like was a Jenga block along your deconstruction journey? So I think the next really big Jenga block for me was just everything related to the LGBTQ rights. The church is very homophobic in some of its core beliefs. And so I was raised to believe that anyone who has a homosexual relationship is a sinner or anyone who doesn't identify with their gender that God birthed them as is a sinner. And I was okay with that because that was all I knew. It was the only thing anyone ever told me. And then as an adult, I remember having a coworker who was just one of the kindest, best coworkers I've ever had. He was a one of my first supervisors when I left the classroom. 
And he was in a committed relationship and he was active in his church and he was gay. And I couldn't just go with the whole like, oh, yes, well, he's a sinner. I just it made no sense to me. Why was his love and his relationship and his marriage somehow less valid than mine when it looks from the outside totally the same? Especially when he was like a better Christian than we were at that point. Oh yeah, like by a pretty wide margin, he was a better Christian than we were. And so I was like, okay, wait a minute, this isn't going to work. And so I remember us talking about that quite a bit. And we finally, I think, came to the conclusion that on that particular issue, the Bible was wrong. Mm. And it was okay because we could be like, well... It was a cultural thing. And then we heard arguments where some people were like, well, maybe it wasn't just like healthy homosexual relationships that were a sin. Yeah. And so I remember doing a lot of, I call it mental gymnastics now, where I'll sort of like create arguments that are really complicated and have to like go and bounce around to a lot of different scriptures to sort of like create a worldview that allowed for scripture to be inerrant. And I would like forced it together in a way that honestly didn't really work. And I would just sort of pretend that it did work. So at that point, I felt like I had taken out a couple more Jenga blocks and I had to do a lot of work actively kind of holding the tower in place with my hands to like keep it from falling apart. I definitely think that was a really important one for me because, you know, I had known that I was not hetero, you know, I'm bisexual. And so I had known that about myself since middle school. But that wasn't something that I had talked to you about. And I remember when I finally told you, and I remember being really, really relieved that you didn't like react with disgust. And I don't think that I would have felt safe to tell you that if you hadn't already been deconstructing that related to your coworker. So Mm -hmm. I think in a lot of ways, that Jenga block, it was one for both of us, and it gave us permission together to say, okay, maybe it is time to question this entire thing. You know, like if something's so foundational, at least, you know, according to the people who raised us, if something so important could be wrong, then what else could be wrong? Oh no. Now, if th- if that's wrong and hell's wrong, uh-huh, then it really opens the floodgates to a lot of stuff being wrong. Yeah. I think probably for the first 10 years of marriage, we were desperately clinging to our faith. Like we were in small groups at church, we were volunteering every week. We were reading our Bibles fervently and we were praying together every night. Like we were trying so hard to keep that Jenga tower from falling over. Do you, Mm -hmm. do you remember any of the like experiences that we had with like our community groups trying to get support with that? Yeah. I mean, I think you and I were both deconstructing and somewhat like 
leapfrog style. Like I would deconstruct mm -hmm. a little farther than you were comfortable with. And we'd like have some serious conversations and then you would deconstruct a little bit more. And I would be like, Oh, oh what's happening. You're a little far from the conformed, the normal. And <laughs> eventually we just started admitting, like, I've got serious doubts where I'm not sure that this religion is true anymore. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure if there's a God, I'm not sure it's the God we find in the Bible. And if Jesus is God, I'm not sure he's represented in the current religion that exists in America called Christianity. And so I started just admitting for the first time that I doubt it. And so we, I remember sitting down in our living room, talking to our community group about it. And they were very kind about it in a way that was very uncomfortable condescending <laughs> they were like um have you tried praying about it and I'm like yeah I'm not dumb I, I've tried praying about it and I don't think he's listening and they're like oh man that was my only that's my go-to is have you tried praying about it what about uh have you read the bible yes at that point I had read through the bible twice in two years front to back and the whole time I was praying begging I was like god I'm not sure you're there. And I really could use a sign like, is this real or am I just a flesh animal living on this planet and you don't exist or you don't care much about me? Because that's how it feels right now. And it didn't happen in the first year. And I was like, I'm going to give this one more shot. I'm going to read the Bible again. And I'm begging you, God, I really need a sign that you exist. I need you to speak to my heart. Everyone else I knew talks about this relationship with God. Like it's a two-way thing or this like, like sense that they get from the spirit. That's like this thing. And I was like, I think all of those things are just placebos. I think we make <laughs> them up in our heads. And I was like, God, I really need something that's more than a placebo. I need you to speak to me. And I got nothing. It was crickets. And I was like, after two full years of trying, I kind of just gave up. Yeah. I, I remember while you were going through that, I was having a similar experience, but more, it was more focused on prayer for me, where I just was remembering how many times I had prayed fervently and God had just ignored me. So I was in a place of like, I am just not going to pray at all. And I'm going to see if I feel any different. Hmm. Spoiler alert, I, I didn't. But I remember telling the girls in our small group, because of course we had to have separate, you know, men's night and women's night. But I remember telling them that I was really struggling with doubt about like prayer and just trusting in God. And, and one of the women was like, I just can't relate to that at all because I don't know, I guess I've just never really struggled with doubt. And I was like, okay, thank you. Like so unhelpful. <laughs> sometimes you don't have to say anything, just, <laughs> you know, sometimes when your options are say mm. something not helpful or just stay quiet. The best bet is just to stay quiet. Yeah. Yeah. So that was like right around the time that we decided to just quit going to church. But what was the sort of final straw, at least from your perspective? 
Oh, I feel a little bad about this because I didn't realize the consequences of my actions, but uh, we were going to a big mega church and they did this thing where on January 1st, they take their membership down to zero and anyone that wants to rejoin has to take this quiz. It's like a 45 minute quiz of like, how committed are you and how much are you giving mm -hmm. and are you reading the Bible and like just a very complex thing. And we'd been going there for like 10 years. We were used to it at this point. And at the end of it, there was this question that said, if you were to die today, how confident are you that you would be going to heaven? And I think the correct answer was supposed to be 100% confident that I'm going to heaven. But I'd spent the last 10 years sort of deconstructing my faith. And I think I put something like 70%. I'm like, eh, it was not like a low answer. It was like a uh, maybe, which is about the most I could muster in the moment. And little did I know that that meant I couldn't be a member and I couldn't serve anymore because I wasn't all in anymore because somehow my faith had been insufficient. So by answering that one question wrong, you basically didn't qualify for membership yeah. because you weren't a hundred percent sure that you would go to heaven. And I remember you kind of talking about that, but I don't think either of us realized that that was going to literally get us sort of evicted from the church. So since you're the head of the household, that meant neither of us could be in leadership. And after the years of volunteering that we had put into that place, it, it was such a slap in the face of them just being like, well, we need you to step down. Yeah, I am sorry about that. I Aww. just, I had to be honest, I guess, in the moment. Yeah. Uh, and it had some consequences and I'm, it was really hard at the time. I remember there were a lot of tears and a lot of frustration uh, that we had to kind of work through, but I'm really glad that we aren't going there anymore because I think that place was toxic. It really was like the farther I get from that place, the more I realize just how much unnecessary anxiety was being created. And not just for me, because I have religious trauma, but even for the people in the congregation that didn't have religious trauma, I think they were just stressed all the time, like trying to follow all of these rules that even if you want to hang on to your faith, I still just don't think that that's what Jesus was intending it to be like. Yeah. I'm constantly finding myself frustrated by, so in the Bible, Jesus had this one group of people that he was like, not ever kind to. He was very kind and very loving to everyone except for the Pharisees. And what the Pharisees did is they looked at the Bible and they were like, this is good, but not quite enough rules. And so they created a whole bunch of extra rules and expectations just to make sure that everybody was as sinless as possible. And they were really hard nosed and kind of bullies about it. And Jesus just relentlessly lectured them about like, quit adding rules to the Bible. You're making it harder than it needs to be. And you're forgetting the reason why we came up with these things in the first place. They would look at the rule like, don't work on Sabbath. That's the one rule is don't work on Sabbath. And then mm -hmm. they would make a list of like a hundred things you weren't allowed to do on the Sabbath. 
Like you couldn't pick a piece of grain off of a stalk of grain and eat it because that for them was work. And Jesus was like, that's not, you're turning it into something that it didn't need to be. But then we do that. That's like evangelical Christianity right now. They've looked at what was in the Bible and then they've created all these other things like you better homeschool your kids and you better have kids if you're a woman and just can't be gay. Yeah. And they added things. And so we're kind of like modern day Pharisees. Yeah. I feel like there was a lot of grief for me, sort of once we had really deconstructed and and had stopped going to church because it was like, what if I just spent 30 years doing, you know, like I have been (laughs) bending over backwards and like, trying so hard for this thing that now I'm realizing I don't even think it matters. It was really rough. Is there anything that you feel like was really connected to religious trauma that you deconstructed for you? Or was it more just sort of like detaching these intellectual ideas from the way that you were living your life? I, a lot of people talk about deconstruction in a very intellectual sense where I have this Jenga tower and I'm looking at every piece and I'll pull something out. I'll evaluate it. I might tweak it a little bit and then put it back into the tower. And it's very sort of an intellectual exercise in what do I believe and what don't I believe? And there's a little bit of that that's true, but there's also, I think, a more emotional element to deconstruction because Sometimes I don't feel like I was able to control the deconstruction. You know, I wasn't able to just ignore the plight of my LGBTQ friends. I couldn't just say, oh yeah, well, the Bible says they're sinning. Uh, I'm just not going to look at that Jenga block. Like I couldn't, my brain couldn't do that. And so Mm -hmm. even without my permission, sometimes my brain would be pulling these Jenga blocks out of the tower and I'd be like, wait, 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 hold on, hold on. I I don't think it's going to stay up without that, that block. And I tried so hard to hold it in place for years, just out of sheer willpower. Yeah. And that I think caused a lot of anxiety. And I don't know if it counts as trauma or not, but I found it very distressing that I couldn't just live the life I was told to live and believe the things I was supposed to believe anymore. It was hard. I definitely think, you know, looking back on, especially when, your brother, Austin, said that he was not a believer, you know, that he's atheist, that it felt like I was watching you experience trauma from that because it was like, this person who I love is going to die, but also be eternally damned. And I remember you having all these conversations with him, trying to like win him back and trying to like engage with him. And you tried so hard. And I remember you just being torn up about that. And like, that is such a stupid wound. Yeah. Looking back on it, it's so silly and like a little bit embarrassing, but I was, I remember talking to my mom afterward and she was in a panic about it, obviously. And I was like, mom, no worries. I've got this. I went to Bible school. I'm very intelligent. I studied the Bible more than like anyone else in this family. I got this. I have a very special set of skills. 
a set of skills that I don't use at all in my job. I can use it in this one situation. I'm going to win my brother back. And so I went over to his house with these arguments, these apologetics. I had all these books about like reasons to believe. And I would try to like convince him like, oh, you just missed out. You, you forgot about this important piece of evidence that's so clear and compelling. Joke's on so you because Austin is really fucking smart. <laughs> He's so much smarter than any of us. And so... And in the most kind ways that he could possibly do it, he would just sort of like dismantle all of my arguments in front of my eyes. And I would be like, oh man, that argument did not hold up. Hold on, let me pull another one out. And he would just very gently and kind of apologetically dismantle that argument as well. And I'd be like, oh, okay, uh, hold on, I have one more. And then he would like, ah, oh, I'm so sorry, dismantled. <laughs> and I was like, okay, got it. You're very smart. I'm going to have to go back and do a lot more homework. And I'm not going to come back until I have an argument that is so compelling that my brilliant brother is not going to dismantle it in seconds. And I tried. I read so many apologetics books. I listened to podcasts. I talked with my friends in church about it. And I was like, I couldn't find a single argument that was so compelling that it was going to convince a non-believer that they needed to believe. And I was like, uh-oh this is kind of a problem, isn't it? Because mm -hmm. now I don't think I can really believe it anymore. Because it's just, when you really look at it from a perspective of a skeptic, it doesn't hold a lot of water. Which brings me back to that philosophy of life that we wrote before we got married. Over the last 16 years, our philosophy of life has changed in like some really fundamental ways. But I'm so much happier with my philosophy of life right now. Mm -hmm. And I'm really grateful that I got to spend the last 16 years with you, like deconstructing together and like figuring out what life actually is about. Yeah. I don't think I could have done it with anybody else. I agree. I think, I think we hit the jackpot and maybe, maybe that was God, you know, like putting yeah. us together. I'm happy to give him credit for that. <laughs> But okay, so what would you say your philosophy of life is now? Oh man, this <laughs> I need a um, I need a one page essay in the next ten minutes. <laughs> okay, absolutely. And if ours don't align, then we can't stay married. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's a lot simpler now. I spent so much time building this philosophy of life that was within the context of eternity. This like everything you do in this, you know, 70, 80, 90 years, however much you get has to be about God. Mm -hmm. And when you kind of just delete eternity from the equation, because like none of us knows what's going to happen after we die. So really, we really can only bet on this one life that we have. And we have to live a life that we know is like the best, healthiest most joyful and kind life that we can live. And so it's kind of weird to say, but I think my philosophy of life is a little more selfish now. Like mm. I kind of have to take care of myself. I have to take care of the people that I love, which is you and, and my family and my friends. And if it's just about making sure that this life is good and safe and loving and wholesome, it's really not too terribly complicated. Yeah. You have to work to make some money and then you use that money to live the best life you can live. So I, I joke about like people on Twitter, like, don't tell me how to live my best life, but I do kind of like try to live my best life now. Yeah. 
It's funny because I feel like if we had written that explanation of our philosophy of life, you know, when we were getting married, what do you think that pastor would have said? (laughs) He would have been so disappointed in me because he had mentored me through my entire childhood and was uh, essentially grooming me for a, a life in ministry. And I think he would have been incredibly sad to learn that I didn't believe that. And I'm not going to devote everything I am to someone that I can't see, who doesn't talk to me, who doesn't engage with me, who doesn't answer my prayers. I'm going to focus on the people I can interact with and talk to and actually have relationships with. You know, you use the word selfish. And I know you kind of are saying that tongue in cheek, but do you really think it is selfish to try to live your life in a way that is as healthy as it can be for you and the people around you? Is that selfish? It's selfish by the definition that the church gives us when we're growing up. Uh, You can't just say that in church circles. You couldn't say something like that in youth group and get away with it because they're telling you everything has to be about God. It cannot be about you. You know, he must increase, you must decrease. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things I had to deconstruct was the idea of selfishness. And what does that actually mean? And if I'm doing something selfish in the sense that it's taking away from somebody else's ability to live their best life, then yeah, I'm not going to do that. That's not fair. That's not kind. But if I can do things that are good for us and they don't hurt anyone else, then I think that's probably the choice you should make. Yeah. I I also feel like there's sort of a a missing piece in that totally God-centric worldview, and this is just me speaking personally, that it sort of absolves you of the responsibility to think about the consequences of your actions that do impact people negatively, as long as you can justify why God is cool with it. You know, like it's okay for me to bully a gay child into dying by suicide because that's what God told me to do. So I don't need to even really worry about the fact that I was instrumental in someone's death, you know? And I think that to me, that shift in worldview in so many ways has relieved my conscience way more than when I was trying to do all of those things that seemed wrong. Yeah. So you and I have left the church and neither of us identify as Christians. I think we might be in slightly different places in terms of what we believe about God and if he exists, I'm I'm a little bit more of a deist and and you're a little bit more of an atheist. But I know that a lot of people who experience religious trauma don't necessarily come to the same conclusions that we have. And several people that we love dearly and you know are very close to are in that boat. How do you coexist with them having the experience that you've had with deconstruction? Um, I think I was set up for success, uh, ironically, by going to a conservative Baptist school and then studying philosophy. 
So when you study philosophy, your professors basically spend the first two years of your college career making sure that you understand that you don't understand anything. It's <laughs> like they'll basically unravel your entire worldview and let you know that you can't actually know anything for certain. And I became very comfortable with that idea that I don't actually know anything for certain. And I can know things maybe and maybe sure is about the highest level of certainty that I can even get to at this point. Because if Aristotle and Descartes and Socrates and all of these other philosophers who are much, much smarter than I am can't know anything for sure, then who am I? How arrogant would it be for me to say that I know something for sure? And so I think we just, I think it's a lot easier, I think, actually going through life with a level of uncertainty. You don't have to know everything. You just kind of need to take care of yourself and you need to kind of let other people take care of themselves in the best way they know how. And if they are Buddhist or Muslim or Christian or Mormon or atheist, and they're figuring out how to live their best life, who are you to tell them they're wrong? Yeah. I feel like when I have friends and loved ones who are in religion, I don't I don't want to dismantle their faith for them. You know, like that's not my goal. I feel like the question that I really just want to ask them is, do you feel like you have meaning and purpose? And are you being honest with yourself? If the answer is yes, then good for you. Let's just keep doing what we're doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If somebody's using religion in a way that is uh, helping them to understand life and understand how to live life. And maybe it's giving them a uh, moral framework uh, to make decisions that makes it easier for them to get through life. I am not going to stand in anybody's way. If somebody has built a framework around their life where it requires them to tell somebody else how to live their life and like make someone else's life somehow worse because their religion tells them they have to, I kind of have a problem with that. Mm. It's hard switching from a mindset where you're supposed to be sharing your faith with people all the time to getting out of that mode. You know, I think there's this human tendency to find something good, something that's been good for you, and like to just really want to share it with people. Because that's what has brought me freedom and that's what's brought me peace. But I don't need you to believe what I believe. I'm just going to let you have your own journey and maybe point out some of the mentally unhealthy facets of religion that aren't even necessarily essential to it. Mm, I think that was one of our most recent and most profound Jenga blocks was some of the things you learn in evangelical churches are just fundamentally unhealthy from a psychological standpoint. And so as you got your counseling degree and started learning about what's the difference between healthy and unhealthy worldviews, there were several things that, that you had to deconstruct and then on the other side of deconstruction, you're like, I can't believe I spent 30, 35 years of my life believing mm -hmm. that kind of broken worldview that caused so much anxiety and stress and judgment, just 
pain. Yeah. And when you set them aside, you can live a much healthier life. Yeah. Well, Marcus, I think you're brilliant. Um, (laughs) So thank you so much for being on this podcast. (laughs) Well, I think you're brilliant and I love you and I would marry you again in a heartbeat. Oh, same, 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 same. We should have like a, a second wedding that's not all like worship songs and prayers, <laughs> but instead it's just like, let's do life together and let's keep being uncertain and keeping curious. Oh, I'm on board. Sweet. Listeners, thanks for being here on this old journey with us. I bet you will probably hear from Marcus again. And Marcus, thanks for being here. All right. I love you. Love you too. Bye. Bye. Well, that's all she wrote for this episode. If you have any questions, lean not on your own understanding. Email me at Anna at EmpathyParadigm.com. Bye.